You're listening to episode 6 of the Crazy Science Report. I'm Tanya Faber, the Senior Science Reporter at the Sunday Times. And today we're going to be exploring how pollen can be used to solve crimes. It's actually one of the most reliable but underutilized forms of forensic analysis and it's called forensic palynology. We'll start off with a broader context of forensic analysis and how some forms are more reliable than others. Then we are going to look at a few weird case studies not involving pollen but where forensics got it completely right or completely wrong. And then in the last part I'll be sharing with you an interview I did with a brilliant local scientist called Dr. Dennis Berman who knows everything one could need to know about pollen in general but who can also walk us through some local and international criminal cases where pollen was a key piece of evidence. Stay tuned. It's a fascinating discipline and I am sure there are very few people who aren't interested in how evidence is inadvertently left behind by criminals and then used extensively by the criminal justice system. Fictitious television programs like CSI have certainly generated more interest in this type of science and they often dumb it down but in real life it's far more complicated especially because lives are at stake. A wrongful conviction based on unreliable forensic evidence is a devastating concept. I'm not sure if you saw The Innocence Files on Netflix, where they took a deep dive in the first few episodes into the concept of bite marks and how these were used in convictions, and they focused specifically on one quack scientist who presented what he called irrefutable evidence to put several men behind bars. There's the story of Levon Brooks, for example, who spent 16 years in prison for the murder of little Courtney Smith, who was three years of age and who was snatched from her bed and murdered in September in 1990. Brooks was arrested on rather flimsy evidence and then along comes this quack scientist, Dr. Michael West, a dentist armed with all the right gadgets to prop up his science in court. So he arrives with photographs and slides and label diagrams and all the right technology, you name it and Brooks is convicted and then he's only released more than a decade and a half later when they found the actual killer and West put countless other men behind bars before it was revealed that there was no substance at all to his bite mark forensic analysis. Then there are the weird cases where rightful convictions have been made but on the sheer luck of a tiny piece of evidence. For example, there's the story of the man in Helsinki who stole a car in 2008 and then he later dumped it a few kilometers from where he had stolen it. And he was under suspicion and he was questioned, but then he was released because there was actually a lack of evidence that could link him to the crime. But then the police went through the car very carefully and found a tiny little dead mosquito and the mosquito had obviously had a delicious drink of blood and the blood was still in the mosquito's body and when they tested it the DNA matched the man who they had been suspicious of right at the beginning and they were able to convict him of the theft. Then there's also an interesting case from 1994 where glitter was used in a conviction. A mother and her five-year-old daughter were brutally murdered during a burglary in their home and not long before the murder the little girl had obviously been doing an arts and crafts project using glitter and when police arrived at the scene and found their bodies, there was glitter on their actual bodies and on the carpet and on the bed and around the area where the little girl had been working. And in this case also, a suspect was picked up and he walked free because there wasn't enough evidence to convict him. But then five years later, his car was abandoned in a scrapyard and in the car they saw tiny little sparkling flecks in the crevices inside the car. 
and they were, you guessed it, the exact type of glitter that the little girl had been using for her arts and crafts project and a conviction then followed. Strangely enough, there are even cases involving an African parrot that mimicked his owner pleading with his own wife not to kill him and another one in which a cockatoo picked the heads of two assailants so badly that the police were able to actually take DNA from its beak and make a conviction. The bird, whose name was actually Bird, died in the altercation, but he had helped convict the killers of his beloved human dad. So that's quite incredible. So those are obviously the weird and wonderful cases, but the whole discipline of forensic science and forensic analysis is so interesting because it's so textured and there's just so much riding on it. We'll take a short break now and when we come back we are going to be looking at some actual cases in South Africa and abroad where pollen was actually used to either convict or exonerate. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Steve Compella from Golden Arrows. If you thought I was a son of the soil, check the real soil. Just listen to Sports Live with BBK. They don't come any darker. The darker the berry, the sweeter the juice. Sports Live with BBK. Welcome back to episode 6 of the Crazy Science Report. You're listening to Tanya Faber, senior science reporter from the Sunday Times. I was very fortunate this past week to catch up with Dr. Dulles Berman from the University of Cape Town's Lung Institute. Berman is a guru when it comes to all things pollen, and for her, the forensic side of it is just one aspect. On the one hand, pollen is the fundamental part of what keeps the world going because of its role in the reproduction of plants, so we wouldn't all actually be here if there wasn't pollen. But on the other hand, anyone who suffers from a pollen allergy will tell you that pollen itself is actually a criminal of sorts. But here, we'll be talking specifically about crimes in which pollen was used to tell the full story. Right, well, pollenology is the identification of pollen grains for a variety of reasons. For air sampling, for to find the triggers for allergic disease, pollens that cause hay fever, itchy eyes, runny nose, those sort of symptoms. And then um, pollenology is also used to examine oils, to examine um, soil samples, and um, maybe reconstruct vegetation patterns from many thousands or even millions of years ago. And then there's forensic palynology, which could be used as real evidence in court cases. Can you tell us the story about the Neisner murders where pollen was used in a forensic context? Yes, the two young waitresses who were, were murdered, one of the bodies definitely was moved. And it was, it was necessary to try to prove that. And they proved that by looking at the pollen grains that were found on the one young woman's body and matching them to where she was found and they didn't match. So they could prove that the body had been moved. And was there a conviction based on that evidence? Did that form part of the evidence? It certainly did and it, and it, was, it was accepted and the suspect was convicted. It added to the body of evidence that was available and um, in fact, I think it was substantial. And there was a case in Austria many years ago. Can you tell us about that one? Yes, in 1959, 
Um, somebody disappeared and there was a suspect, but they couldn't find the body. So they examined the mud from the suspect's boots and they found a fossil pollen from a tree that no longer grows in Austria, but they knew where it had grown near the Danube. And he confronted the suspect with the evidence and he confessed and told them where the body was. Wow. So, I mean, have there been many such cases since then, or is that still a bit of a landmark case in terms of how strong the evidence was in terms of palynology? Well, it's, it's called the most famous case, but there have been several more since then. Um, burglaries, rapes, murders, assaults, where pollen has linked a suspect to the crime or um, a location has been defined. There was a very interesting one where a uh, victim was garroted under a beech tree in England and they examined the the samples on the body and they managed to connect the the pollen what is called the pollen profile with evidence found in the suspect's car and on, on his clothing because there was a particular type of fungus on that beech tree and just the percentages of pollen in the bluebells and oak trees and other other pollen that was found at the scene and on the body and in the, the suspect's car and on his clothes tied it all up very well. Very interesting. And also, you have been involved in some South African cases yourself. Can you tell me more about those? Well, they, they never got to court. It was complaints from residents. Um, they complained about a whole variety of things because although individual pollen grains are microscopic, when there are a lot of them and they clump, then pollen is visible. You will know that from pollen that's fallen around a vase or when you have um, flowers that have a lot of pollen. And up near Mossel Bay, there was a Fainbos packing plant where the residents were convinced that there was toxic sulfur fallout in the air which turned out to be pine pollen. That was one case. And another case was from Atlantis, from a printing factory where residents in the area found black splotches on their walls and were convinced it was printer ink. And it turned out to be a fungal spore, torula, which is black. And you spoke to me earlier about a case where someone, it was clear that they'd run out the back door. Can you tell me about that one? Oh yes, I think that was a New Zealand case where a, a very brazen burglar found a door open and entered a home. I believe he made himself a cup of coffee and then went in and, and woke up the resident. And I think somebody else in the house chased him out. But unfortunately for him, he dropped his jacket and he had brushed against a, a bush near the back door that was full of pollen, hypericum. And so that managed to link him to the crime. I see, that's so interesting. So in South Africa, you say we don't have people who work full time as forensic palynologists, but people such as yourself, you know, you get contracted to, um, you, you get consulted to discuss these things. That's correct. And there are expert palynologists around the country at all the major universities and some of the smaller universities as well that work mostly with soil samples. And can you just tell me again about the case where something was being transported and when they opened the boxes, something had been removed and it also had a South African link? Oh, yes. Um, that was the one where machinery was shipped 
from Europe to Asia. And when, when the cargo was unpacked, the containers contained bags of soil. So they analyzed the soil and they analyzed the pollen found in the soil and traced it to Cape Town. As you know, we have many unique pollen types. Right, right. So as a, a discipline within forensics, how old is forensic palynology? I think it's about 60, 70 years old. It could be longer, but that's when cases, that's the earliest case that I have come across. And would you say it's growing now? Is it gaining momentum more recently? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not able to assess that. But it's, it's certainly an underused tool. It is expensive and time-consuming, and it's hard to find analysts, and I think those are the reasons. But we, we do this every day and every week in seven cities at the UCT Lung Institute. Through our website, it would be able, people would be able to find palynologists in the city. So that brings us to the conclusion of episode 6 of the Crazy Science Report. I really hope you've enjoyed hearing all about forensic palynology. I must say that I found it very interesting to read up about it and especially to get to interview Dr. Berman. I feel very lucky that she had a slice of time to give to me and I hope you have found it as stimulating as I have. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next time on the Crazy Science Report.